Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elchison, and joined with me today is Mr. Angel Mendoza. Hello, world. And dialing in from the West Coast is our Director of Strategy, Adam Simon. Hello. Well, I'm glad everybody is here for this exciting episode of Floor 9. We'll be talking about F8, Microsoft Build, and Google I.O. Uh, we're not even going to do an intro this week because there's, there's just too much to cover. Uh, so first, I want to f- start off this podcast with saying uh, we'll be kind of covering some high-level, uh, larger Im- implications from these developer conferences that happened in the past week. And if you're looking for more in-depth analysis, please go check out our Fast Forwards by our very own Richard Yao on our Medium blog, where you can really get, get all like the in-depth analysis on, on all the announcements and products that have been released uh, at these three developer, co- de- developer conferences so far. And we'll make sure to put the links in that in the, in the show notes. Um, so great. Well, Adam, just before we dive into everything here, my question for you is, um, did you wear your Oculus Go on the airplane? And what was the vibe? <laughs> Uh, I did not wear my Oculus Go on the airplane on my way back to the West Coast Um, because, uh, as I mentioned, when I was on my way back from uh, F8, it still makes you kind of look like a tool uh, if you're using a VR headset in public. Uh, It's still, we're not, uh, I mean, you know, uh, I I think I know that. (laughs) So (laughs) I I would ask you, when is the last time you saw someone using a VR headset in public? Well, never, but with this new <laughs> version of the VR headset, I was curious if, if you're now willing to put it on on the airplane and experience VR 30,000 feet up in the air. Yeah, no. Uh, and, you know, it's it's I, I would consider it, except that it's actually not really uh, well-versed and well-designed for, for travel use. Um, if you want to watch, it seems ideal to, like, want to watch Hulu or Netflix on it, on, on the plane, because you'd have a, a much larger display. Uh, you know, larger in quotes, larger in VR. Uh, but uh, you can't download that content, even the Netflix content, you can't download it for offline usage. It's only streaming. So, uh, you know, you could play you could play a game on it, I guess. Uh, but also the battery life is only, you know, two hours long. So it would not have lasted the whole flight. So the answer is no. Yeah, short answer, no. Well, it's interesting that they're not letting you eat of one download content. Because I feel like the whole idea of this is being, you know, wireless, like no tether. So I feel like that would be part of it is that not only you physically did like not to, like attach anything, but you were able to go anywhere with it, travel. Like, like that, I think that, that that's a big selling point for this. But yeah, yeah. Given the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Given the name. Right. I guess it, I guess it's still young. Well, interesting. Well, good. Well, good to know. We'll, we'll check in uh, with you later on to see if you wear it back uh, from your West Coast to East Coast flight. Anyways. Uh, so the w- the topic for this episode, as we mentioned, we'll be talking about Google I/O, uh, at Facebook, and Microsoft, and really how they're going to be positioning like themselves for the future, and what this really means for this larger potential shift in consumer behavior. Um, and we can start off directly with F8 and their developer conference, because Adam, you were you were on the scene, you were there live in person. Um, so do you just want to give us like, a quick this general vibe of of how it was? It seems like this year that the the conference was really focused on data privacy and how they're going to rebuild this brand trust. But from your vibe on the ground, like what what were you feeling? Um, Facebook was putting out this year. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, I think my third or fourth F eight and uh, second one in a row. I was there last year. Um, honestly, there was a lot less to see and do on the show floor. They did say attendance was about the same as last year, or maybe even slightly up. Um, but I don't think that they, they didn't have as, ma- as many products f- to show off. There wasn't as much uh, to talk about for developers in terms of, uh, of, of new integration points and new, new platforms you could be using. Uh, the best demos on the show floor were all Oculus demos, and it was sort of like everyone was kind of just looking at their watch, waiting for them to actually give us the Oculus Go devices so we could just try it for ourselves. There was like not a reason to be there you know, demoing some of, this, uh, some of those things when we were going to get the units ourselves. So um, I think there, there was a big focus on rebuilding that trust. Um, speci- obviously, it's a developers conference, so part of it was about re- rebuilding that relationship between developers and Facebook because they did have to shut down a bunch of APIs pretty quickly after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, so it was about sort of repairing that, but also there were a lot of uh, talks and panels around brand trust and brand safety on the platform. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was a major theme for sure. Interesting. Um, I, I think that, and this is what I really want to focus on here, is that that's what I think F8 this year was about, was rebuilding trust 
and this is a great example of what happens when you lose consumer trust like they were um no like they were like there were rumors to announce their new home speaker product that got completely blocked and like they and they, and they can't be competitive in this new market because like they've lost that consumer trust um so going forward like looking at, at, at like a larger industry perspective like do we think consumers are going to be asking more transparency when it comes to data around these large corporations because facebook right now has has been getting a lot of flack and a lot of attention on their data and privacy policies but i mean if, if we look at google or comcast i mean they probably collect even more information on users and we haven't heard anything about them being put under like the lens or the microscope of scrutiny and i think there probably needs to be more scrutiny out there if consumers actually care about their um like their data and their privacy yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's, <laughs> from our perspective, everybody who's sort of in the industry is asking for that. But on the other hand, consumer behavior has not really forced the hands of any of these companies. Facebook revenues were up even after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, we're not really seeing users move away from Facebook or even reduce their usage, really. Uh, and same thing with, like, pretty much every other data leak that's happened in the past 10 years. Consumers just don't they they might be outraged at the time but they don't really change their behaviors which is what is needed to put market pressure on these companies to really change uh the only sort of progress in this area really has been gdpr coming from the eu uh, and i think that is good it is it is good that most companies are adopting gdpr compliant policies globally and not just within the eu um, but it could go further it could go further to to really you know punish companies that are you know running recklessly with user data um, and I, I think everybody is hyper aware that at some point consumers might turn against a company uh, for recklessly using their data, but it just, uh, we don't have evidence of that happening yet. And until we do, I think we're going to see more, uh, more behavior like this. Yeah, and I think coming out of F8, going back to consumers, I believe Facebook introduced features that consumers will begin to think or begin to expect from other platforms. So one being their clear history where it's their new privacy feature allowing users to delete data that Facebook has collected from them across sites and apps, and also transparency, so um, their review process, how they reopen the app review process, but they're being more transparent. So with other platforms being transparent, like how are you evaluating these apps or API providers or data providers? And I'm, I'm like that is like I was pretty surprised when they actually announced like clear history feature because they are an advertising platform mm -hmm. and that is reducing or like pretty much like limiting what they can provide advertisers like it, it completely cuts their product in half so i mean i, I was pretty surprised that that's something that they actually announced to have that control like totally wipe your yeah. like your data yeah. profile well it's funny because they position that yes it's in clear history but it will also impact the personalization that you get from facebook so it's a double-edged sword. yeah exactly and the way that zuckerberg was talking about it on stage was obviously scornful <laughs> it was obviously like a this is a thing you think you want but you don't really want it but here it is anyway and just wait until you see how bad it makes your experience like and and i think that for some people probably will hit that clear history button and then be like really annoyed that they're not seeing things from their close friends and family in their facebook feed that they're used to or from like the, tr the news sources uh, and websites that they visit regularly that they're not seeing those in their feed as much I do think that there will be some backlash probably of people who hit that button and then have a worse experience. But ev just the attitude coming from Zuckerberg while he was talking about it was pretty, pretty scornful. <laughs> yeah. I mean like that, that'll be funny. We'll have to do an experiment. It's I will, I will hit clear history and then I'll see how my Facebook habits change. That'll be a, like a live experience. And so in like a week from now we can regroup on uh, if that really made any, any bit of a difference because what if we do it and it just doesn't do anything it's like it doesn't change my experience because it's like I, I only spend a few probably minutes a day on facebook just like scrolling through like stupid videos so i don't know um how impactful like that'll be but uh, hey we, we could try it out that'd be interesting right but remember it's actually not affecting your data from facebook.com or the facebook app it's all this is only for third-party sites that are like you have uh like buttons and whatnot embedded in them yeah, I don't know if I've, I've actually ever clicked a like button on a third-party site. Doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that that I mean, I think that's the thing that it's actually addressing, is it doesn't matter if you've ever clicked a like button. If you visit a site with a like button and have been logged into Facebook recently, Facebook knows you've been on that site, and that that's really the data that that clear history is wiping out. Right. Interesting. Well, we'll see how what 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 to see how that actually uh, 
um, plays out if I if I decide to do it. TBD. I yeah. don't know. I want to I want to take a second to, th- to think about because I, I was just thinking about something here. It's you know Facebook spent so much time talking about user privacy and data pro- and build, rebuilding that trust, right? And it's interesting that the only really hardware product or whatever like they announced was the Oculus, and that was the Oculus Go. And I've been thinking about this is that it makes a little bit of sense of why they did that because do you guys still attach Oculus to Facebook right now? Even though Oculus is owned by Facebook, when I look at Oculus, I still picture that as a separate like corporation with it, with its own you know identity a and different trust. Platform? Yeah, it, it's like a different platform. So I think they were able to get away with that because consumers still attribute uh, Oculus as, in a way, trustworthy compared to Facebook. I, it's interesting you say that because um, one thing that I noticed on the, on the show floor around the demos that it was not prevalent in any of the presentations was the, the Oculus logo actually now includes Facebook. Um, Oculus, the official uh, sort of brand lockup, says Oculus from Facebook. Um, and that was all over the demo areas, and it's on the box for the Oculus Go. Um, so they actually, that didn't used to be true. That's a, that's a new thing, a new development that they are branding, putting Facebook next to Oculus. Uh, and I can't help but think that that must have been decided and done before all of this Cambridge Analytica stuff. Because uh, even if they were intended to do it, it seems like waiting until a few weeks later would have been the time to change those logos. Um, but um, there we are. <laughs> um, and it, it, it also sort of, yeah, it also sort of hints at it, I think, my question around the, the smart speaker, uh, I had a lot of questions around branding and what it would be branded. And my guess is that it would, would be branded with some new name that we don't know what it is from Facebook. Um, and that it wouldn't be a Facebook branded speaker, but it would have its own, its own sort of standalone brand as well. Um, and I think that, you know, given everything we've heard and, 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 and every place that Facebook is sort of, you know, um, doing well, uh, we've heard that they might be launching the speaker in developing markets first, which I, makes a lot of sense. They've got a really great developing market story with WhatsApp. Um, and if if it is somehow integrated into WhatsApp for calling and video conferencing, I could see that being really popular in other parts of the world. Um, and you know that also, given that they're a very late entrant into the market, um, we talk about Apple being late to the smart speaker market, but Facebook is obviously even later. Uh, that might give them an edge in areas where Google and Amazon are not as strong. So Oculus Research just today announced that it's now, so like Oculus Research, which is the company's R&D labs, announced that it's rebranding the the division to become Facebook's reality labs. So it seems like what Facebook is doing with the rest of their uh, acquisitions is really just forcing it into the like the larger organization that that is Facebook. For good or for worse, time will tell. Any other big topics that you guys want to talk about when it comes to F8? I think we covered most of it with privacy, the Oculus Go. Like those, like those, I think those two were like privacy. the two big takeaways. Well, um, does, does privacy, is there overlap with Facebook dating? I don't know. Is there a tie-in? I don't know. I mean, when I look at it, if like there, like I think Facebook is trying to build a platform where you can Go and find the one, you know, and have, you know, like a, a very... That's just sharing more data with a platform, though, because you want to have your well, interest. Well, I mean, like, what, what we've seen is users aren't, like, their behavior really isn't changing. Like, they're still using Facebook the way they want to use it. Um, yeah. And even though that the data was shared out, like, I think that isn't enough, per se, to get them to switch off or turn off or, or delete the history. I mean, of course, a certain group of users will do that, and they always will. Like, there will like, always be those that are more cautious than others, but... When you come to the general public, it, again, it just seems like that's just more work, and it's easier just to update a new profile, I think, than it is to go in and delete one. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Facebook dating will probably, in the short term, not really affect like the other big dating apps like Tinder and Bumble and everything. Uh, but I do think that it's kind of like uh, it's a it's a late majority app for dating. It's like for if for some reason you haven't you you're, you're single and have not used online dating before, like Facebook dating is here to hold your hand and make it super easy and and you know, it's free and your profile is probably filled out pretty automatically. So, you don't have to do very much, you know? Like I'm, I'm that's where I where I see it. I see it as because they were so late. To, they they could have dominated that market if they had started early. But because they're so late, it's more for for laggards. Yeah. Those are th- those that are too afraid to try Tinder. Uh, ha- they have a safe space with uh, Facebook. Right, exactly. It's funny, Adam, you bring up a good point where it'll be probably targeted to folks who are a b- 
bit older and looking for a true match versus just seeing somebody casually. So more of a Match.com competitor versus a Tinder or a Bumble. Yeah, I 100% think it will take out Match.com because it will be free and you all the, everybody already has a Facebook account. And it's, uh, yeah, for 100% for, for people who are older and, and single, I think it's going to be the obvious choice. Well, talking about people that are older and single, <laughs> Microsoft Build. Shall we talk no, about wait, Microsoft I Build? I have, one, <laughs> I have one more Facebook thing I want to talk about all right. before we move on. Sorry. On. No, do it. Um, the one thing that I was actually the most interested in and impressed by at uh, F8 was their tools around augmented reality. Um, they last year launched their AR Studio development app, uh, and this year added a bunch of uh, tools into it. And they're still rolling out. We have a lot of questions about when some of the, the features are going to be live. But um, Facebook is doing a really great job of building tools that let people make augmented reality experiences without coding. Uh, and I think that's going to be really important if we think about the, the next like five years and augmented reality really becoming its own computing platform. I think they're doing a great job of giving tools to creators to be doing interesting stuff in AR. Um, and they're also bringing a lot of that to the news feed. So one thing that uh, we've been talking with brands about forever is the ability to, um, or the, the need to start providing 3D assets uh, to creators and, and through platforms uh, like Sketchfab. Um, and Sketchfab is actually integrated directly into Facebook's platform at this point. Um, so I think we're going to see start to see a lot of 3D in our Facebook feeds. Um, and Facebook obviously is doing that for selfish reasons. But um, I think it could change a lot of the interactions around the platform. So I think it's an interesting thing to watch. And I think, again, they're, they're really leading the charge there with the, the creation tools. Interesting. And for some background, Sketchfab is a marketplace for 3D assets and 3D objects. So are, are we right. talking about that it'll just be drag and drop to make these augmented reality experiences for it's the back camera and the front camera? It's not 100% drag and drop. There is a little bit of... Uh, connecting the dots um, and it honestly could be even a little easier like if you want to do something like just make a uh, a selfie mask at this point that should be drag and drop and it's not quite there yet it does require a lot a little more setup but it is you don't need to know how to code to do it um, and i think that's the important part um, is that it is a code free environment um, and you know you can watch a tutorial video and then start publishing them yourselves this is going to be even more important on instagram because on Instagram, all of the AR effects are only spread virally. There's no way to promote them outside of uh, influencers using them, for example. So um, I think that, that we're going to see a lot of Instagram influencers start experimenting with these AR effects. And I think by making it code-free, that sort of gives them the tools to be able to do it themselves without needing to you know, hire somebody to help them with it. Wait, so then if I were to go on Instagram, let's say it was live now, and I, I can make my own Instagram AR filter, but like I couldn't distribute that to anybody but who already follows me? Correct. Interesting. So, but then, so it, got it. Okay, so only, only my followers could see what it would, like what my like uh, filter would be. For example, like, that, like on Snapchat, like they have like those sponsored lenses that come across no matter who is doing a filter. So this would be just solely into your personal friend group. Or Correct, group. yeah. Yeah, on Instagram, it's only going to be well. Its followers are obviously if somebody finds you through Explore, which they are also beeping up, they will they will see anybody who sees your your profile will will have will have a little try it button where they can apply the same effect for for themselves. Um, but there is not going to be sponsored lenses inside of Instagram. There will be sponsored lenses inside of Facebook and Messenger, but not in Instagram. At least for now. That is that is very interesting, and I wonder if this is going to help drive the younger users off the Snapchat platform into like, or, or onto Instagram because uh, right now eMarketer, they, they just released their new uh, social uh, snap pack, uh, stat pack for social, social media stat pack. And uh, right now, I mean, uh, Snapchat still has a complete lock on the age range 12, like 12 to 34 is what they're reporting. Um, followed closely by, you know, Instagram and, and those other platforms. So I'm, I'm curious to know um, just exactly how many users will start shifting from the platform once Instagram gets um, all these features that Snapchat has. 
Well, it's interesting. I wonder if that age group is going to age out and then eventually transition into Instagram and be already prepped on how to use AR filters. That's true. My biggest, like, I, I guess my thing is when it comes to these, because I'm a big Snapchat guy. I'm a fan. I haven't used Instagram stories yet, but I haven't, fi- like, I can't pinpoint exactly what makes Snapchat Snapchat. Like, what's that one thing? Because, I mean, Facebook is literally copying everything Snapchat's doing. And from a brand perspective, they have, they have much more scale and reach, which is awesome. But there's just, like, something that just makes Snapchat Snapchat. And I don't know exactly what that thing is yet. But, like, when I go to Instagram, like, I'm not there to be, you know, posting vertical videos of me and AR filters. I'm there to look at photos, I think. But when, I, when I'm on Snapchat, it's, like, natively first. It's meant to be this platform where you just take vertical video and you send the snaps to your story. Like, I guess maybe because it's just, like, the OG platform where it is. Like, I'm, like, locked in there. But maybe. I don't know what it is exactly. Well, they – Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, maybe it's the actual behavior because with Snapchat, you're more pushing out content versus Instagram, you're more taking in other people's content. That's true. It's true. I was just going to say that the in, in that the format concept, I think that that is how most people still think about Instagram, but Facebook was very clear that the stories format across both Instagram, actually across Instagram, Facebook, uh, Messenger and WhatsApp stories will surpass everything else uh, in well, not private messages will surpass the feed uh, by 2019. Uh, so, even though we think about Instagram as mostly the feed, and then stories as like this newer add-on thing, uh, Instagram in particular stories are, are taking off like crazy. And I've noticed this myself in that if I post a story, even if it's something super boring, I get like a hundred views within an hour. It's crazy. So people are definitely using stories i think more than you might expect if you're not using them so no i think i think the story product itself is like you said it's it's gonna be everywhere i think that was something that totally changed the way um consumers consumed content for a a better lack of words um so that totally makes sense that they're really going to be pushing that across all the different platforms they possibly can because uh, that, that's just how people, I think, nowadays are looking to consume content. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, with that, if we've got nothing else to say about Facebook, we can uh, move on briefly to Microsoft Build and then transition ourselves into Google I.O. So the main theme coming out of Microsoft Build is they are really pivoting to B2B. Um, at the Microsoft Build conference, they didn't feature a single consumer uh, focused demo uh what they did instead focus on was for example their uh, drone demo with dji and the azure uh edge computing which was looking to uh, detect um, anomalies in pipes uh when you're out in the field for like infrastructure and they also uh demoed the hololens uh layout feature where and, and, and that again is a HoloLens application where you can pretty much build a floor plan and again this was targeted at factories or industries where it's like you were building a production floor so to help you better understand where you can put your machinery and then from there actually go ahead and buy it and place it in the factory floor to make it like the most optimized you know layout there is possible but um, I think the only thing that we really saw that was consumer focused was the Alexa Cortana back and forth uh, conversation on the uh, um, on the Alexa speaker, as well as the Microsoft uh, desktop. But other than that, it was all B2B. So it seems like they're totally pivoting away from the consumer as um, Windows becomes, you know, like a less important feature in our in our everyday lives. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Microsoft, Microsoft makes most of their money by selling enterprise services. And they are still going to keep making Windows. You're still going to be able to buy a consumer laptop with Windows. But increasingly, it's not going to be for you. It's going to be for these big enterprises. That's my, my, my one question is, like, at, so, at what point does Windows get so enterprise-focused that consumers start abandoning it even more so than they have been? Um, you know, it towards and probably more towards, like, Chromebooks than towards Macs because, because of price point. But, like, it seems like there, there might be a weird, interesting angle there for Google to play as... Uh, if Windows ends up being the enterprise uh, operating system, then maybe Chrome ends up being the, the home operating system for the masses. Well, when it comes to the 
like what Windows be an, an enterprise solution. Um, the issue that I see with that is today, you know, who who are like 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 the two main competitors when it comes to education? That's Apple and Google are really pushing their initiatives to get in early with students. And as these students become, you know, professionals and they get into the workplace, if the workplace is using Microsoft, you know, Office and the Microsoft product, but they're but they're used to either like the iWork suite from Mac or like the G Suite from Google. I think there's going to be like a big, you know, push or a friction to get what those workers are used to, which is either iWork or G Suite in the enterprise. Because what happens is then this this floor will just drop out from Microsoft. That this in this like next generation, um, they're not going to be wanting to use Windows. They're they're going to be wanting to use the platforms that they grew up on. So then, like, where does that leave Microsoft? It kind of kind of going the way of IBM in the sense of like they're not like they don't have a consumer touchpoint anymore. If they're just going to be focusing on it. yeah, and that is uh, a comparison that is made a lot. And uh, yeah, if Microsoft keeps going down that route, uh, eventually, yeah, they will just lose consumers entirely, um, for sure. And and then enterprise sort of piggybacking off of that. If you don't have any of the consumers, to your point, they have two other options now. Um, one of them will will sort of probably take over the enterprise. I think it'll probably be Google. What I find interesting is that I don't know why Microsoft has invested more into thinking of ways to integrate Minecraft into school cu curriculums and actually begin to roll out or provide tools for game-based learning. Because there are stats that prove that game-based learning works to educate, especially for STEAM and STEM skills. So I, if I were Microsoft, I would try to double down on that versus competing with iWorks or, or uh, G Suite for education. I would love to have grown up where I could play Minecraft in school, mm -hmm. um, I think the big pushback there from it'd be more from parents is like how are, how are how are playing video games teaching my kid in school? Um, but after that hurdle, I, I think I think that makes like a lot of sense. I sort of Minecraft like that like gives you the skills. It, it's like problem solving skills is what Minecraft teaches you, which problem is problem solving, critical thinking, collaboration. We I mean we're we're game, like we are gamifying a lot of different parts of our lives. Why not gamify our education? Mm -hmm. If we might be so bold as to say. Shall we talk about Google I.O. as this is really fresh off the press? Yeah, definitely. And the main theme out of Google I.O. this year was really AI powered services. Uh, Google is positioning themselves to help you save time. Uh, so whether that is search and discovery, uh, whether that is having the Google Assistant call uh, and actually book you an appointment at a salon or a haircut or a restaurant and then actually having their Waymo car come and pick you up and drive you to that actual location, uh, Google is really looking to save save you time. And the one product that I think astounded the crowd this year, uh, it's gotten all the talk, is their new Google Duplex product. Uh, this is the product that actually allowed um, a, like the Google Assistant pretty much to call and mimic fairly well, like almost unbelievably well, a person and then talk to a service representative and have them you know, book you an appointment at a restaurant, book you an appointment at a salon. As And it's, it was very difficult to tell who, no, it was very, very difficult to tell that this uh, voice that was booking this appointment for you was actually uh, a robot. And at that moment, Google single-handedly created an industry for startups to develop tools to make sure that you're actually talking to an, a human, so an audio captcha. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and, and what would that look like instead of, you know, picturing where is, where is the stop sign in the captcha? It's going to be like, say, Peter Piper, pick a peckle. I can't even do it. But, you know, if, if they can do it, then, then they know it's a robot. It's funny. You know what? It'll probably be based off voice patterns, which they kind of showed during the demo when they were separating the voices. The demo when they were showing the clip of two voices and they were able to separate the voices. Yes, the uh, two like it was it was a two sports broadcaster on YouTube. Yes. Like they were able to simultaneously separate the voices of each one. That even if they were talking over each other, they could break out the different mm -hmm. voices. Human, not human. TBD. Hot dog. Not hot dog. <laughs> hot dog. Well, Adam, uh, before Angel and I go off on a huge tangent here about hot dogs and startups and audio captures, what are your thoughts on the <coughs> duplex product? Because I feel like you have many thoughts. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. Um, you know, first of all, obviously, 
this is awesome, right? Nobody likes having to call someplace to make a reservation or make an appointment. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some solutions to this as we move more towards things like chatbots, um, but also just like, you know, get your restaurant on uh, Open Door or, or Open Table, sorry. Uh, also on Open Door if you want to, if you want to sell your restaurant. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, no, you know, everybody obviously would uh, would prefer to do this using an app or a website or a chatbot. And so having, uh, you know, an assistant do it for you is seems like a logical next step. Um, but I think that there is a weird thing in that if you're using an app or a chatbot, uh, you're talking, you're, you're, you, the, the user who is trying to initiate the uh, appointment, is talking to, is, is opting in to talk to something that is automated. And in this case, you're asking an automated assistant to uh, talk to somebody who is not expecting that. They're not opting in to talk to an AI. Um, and there are so many weird social implications for that. Um, First of all, like probably these are these conversations, at least in the in the near term, are going to be recorded, uh, and so if those people, you know, for like QA and to improve the experience, so those people on the other end of the phone don't necessarily know that they're being recorded, and that seems like a huge problem. Um, but also, just uh, I think it's it's a big uh, class divide question, and I know that you know it, as this if this rolls out to everybody with an Android phone, that's not necessarily you know the the typical one percent that we think of. Uh, when we think about class issues, but uh, it's still a human asking a machine to talk to another human for them. Um, and it is taking the human element out of some of these people's jobs. Now, sometimes that might be a good thing because you know, certainly Google Assistant will never get angry at them and start yelling at them. Um, but on the other hand, it also deprives them of direct human contact. Uh, and it just, it, see, it just rubs me the wrong way. It rubs me the wrong way that no one at Google thought about the people working in these potentially call centers who are receiving these calls and having to deal with them. That was not addressed on stage at all. And they still haven't addressed it, despite the fact that lots of media and lots of press have really been raising the flag of just like, this could be solved through some pretty easy disclosure. You can imagine a version where you ask Google Assistant to make your hair appointment, and when they when the uh, receptionist answers the phone, it says, hi, this is Google Assistant calling for Adam, and then they know they're talking to Google Assistant. And you know that would give them the opportunity to hang up or to maybe they can press a button, and instead of uh, talking to Google Assistant, it calls you directly. Um, I think it's gonna need some of those escape latches anyway, um, because where this is actually most useful, I think, is not necessarily in making appointments, but in navigating phone trees for customer support and things like that, which we would all, you know, love for that to move to chatbots or whatever. But in the until it does, uh, using a kludge like this might be the best route. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, it's not a bad idea. It's just so typically Google that they don't seem to have thought through the, like, societal impact of it. <laughs> um, and I think that Luckily, lots of people raised their hands uh, after seeing this demo and said, wait, this might not be the best thing to just roll out broadly without uh, some testing and without some thought. Well, I think that they are still testing. I don't think this is coming out anytime soon because like, they, like, they didn't announce an actual like, like, like release date for it. So like, there obviously will be a lot more testing that will be done. But from my perspective, when I look at this, uh, I think it's great. And I don't know... Um, I, I guess my first reaction wasn't all this backlash that came out immediately about the moral implications of what uh, talking to a robot that you, that you don't know you're, that you're talking to really um, is that, that big a deal. Because like when I call in to a service center, for example, and I get a robot, uh, I know it's a robot and that's super annoying. But if I call in and it sounds like a human and it can answer like my questions naturally in a way, I'm like, I don't care if it's a robot or not. Like I think that is a better user experience. So from that perspective, like I would welcome this to come to a call center and I personally wouldn't be that upset that um, I, I didn't know I was talking to a robot. Right, but calling into a call center is different. I agree, I think that they should roll this out to call centers, um, but it's a, it's a question of consent because in that case, you are the one initiating the action into the call center. And in this case, you are literally forcing another human being to talk to an AI. Um, 
there's no way for them to know in advance or opt or not answer the phone because literally their job is to answer the phone. So uh, I think that that's where it's uncomfortable. I would say, is it that you don't know that you're talking to a robot or you don't know that what data is being collected about the phone call? Because like, you know, if that gets disclosed, if they're collecting any data or recording it for training purposes. Right. So then maybe, maybe, maybe they have to lead with something like that. Because for me, I think I understand the argument more when it comes from it's like, oh, I don't know if they're collecting data or if they're collecting data or how they're collecting data on this phone call. But again, if it if I am if I am on a phone and I get a call that's saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking to schedule an appointment or, you know, book an appointment or you know, make make a restaurant re- reservation. And it comes from um, a robot. And I don't know. I'm not necessarily upset about that because I mean, for all I know, it's like that user experience could be more efficient and more polite and on my end, just uh, you know, even a better user experience than, than than having to deal with a you know upset berate customer that was trying to get a reservation at, at the last minute and thinks they're all that and they should get a, like, you know like get a table or whatever. Um, well, I mean th- that that person is still going to call back when Google Assistant fails to get them that reservation. Trust me. Um, so that's that's not really the question. I, I for me, it's I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's there is a legal disclosure question if they are recording any information. Uh, and I do, it'll be interesting to see legally, like where the lawyers, where Google's lawyers fall on that. Um, but uh, I think that there's a moral question about knowing whether you're talking to a robot or not. Or and we're using robot very loosely. I would like to add, but um, because uh, it's not, and, and it's not necessarily this specific use case that I think is concerning to most people. I really don't think most people are. But uh, for me, it's more about like the long term moral implications of not disclosing that information to somebody because you pretty quickly, if you extrapolate into the future, end up in Westworld where you can't tell if somebody is a human or a robot and you don't really know who you're interacting with at any, at any point. Um, like there have been, there, there was that excellent episode of Black Mirror, uh, the dating episode where, uh, spoiler alert, but you know, whatever, um, but <laughs> where, where it's basically two AIs go on like thousands of simulated dates to decide if these people are um, are compatible, and and the characters you're watching the whole time are the artificial intelligences on trial dates. Um, and I think that that that's kind of thing is going to happen, and it's fine as long as you know that that's what's happening. What would suck is if you were on a date and the the thing that was on a date with you was actually an, an AI and not a real person. Like those are the kind of uh, uh, <laughs> I think uh, experiences that we should be that are certainly far in the future, but it's you have to think about those things when you design these things. Otherwise, it normalizes behaviors that might be problematic in the future. I'll be honest. I haven't. I didn't. I didn't extrapolate that far ahead in the future about the moral implications of what um, this could become. So maybe that maybe that, that that's short sighted on my on my aspect kind of more thinking like in the near term. But it's interesting that you bring up how um, you have to kind of put the, put the I guess, like the moral rail guards on today because that's what the uh, Microsoft CEO was stating that, you know, like they're trying from like their perspective when it comes to AI, it's like they're looking to build it ethically from the ground up today. So all of these potential issues down the road, you're not like slapping a Band-Aid on it, but like they've already thought, like thought through them and how that should be solved from like a moral, human, ethical standpoint. Well, and Facebook also talked a lot about um, ethics and artificial intelligence uh, at their event. They, they sort of had a second keynote, which was very research-focused. And they the, the most interesting part of that keynote was about um, assumptions and ethics inside of algorithms and artificial intelligence. So notably, I'm just <laughs> pointing it out here, that of the three developer conferences we had, the only one who I don't think, unless I, I missed it, really talked about ethics and AI is Google, who is the leader in artificial intelligence in the market right now. And that is a little troubling. And I think that's where this response that we're seeing is really coming from. So that was our our take on the Google Assistant and what they're developing there. Uh, but also, when it comes to Google Assistant, there is the visual display now. So Google has partnered with a bunch of third-party third party developers like Lenovo, uh, and they are now putting out a visual uh, display similar to the Alexa Show 
that will have uh, Google Assistant integrated in it. So you can also get like voice and visual instructions and information uh, when it comes to you know cooking or mapping, uh, whatever whatever it might be. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that's going to play out um, in the home space and how users. Uh, I guess, enjoy having both the audio and visual um, guides now. Did they release a price point for that? They did not. Not yet. But I, they said that it'll be released in July at some point. So we'll see uh, wh where, wh where that kind of comes in and how it compares to the Amazon show. Or the, excuse me, I guess it's called the, uh, the Alexa show. Echo show. The Amazon Alexa Echo show. Well, we'll know that it'll come with YouTube. So... That's a plus. Yeah, and that's notably, <laughs> and that's notably the only time they mentioned YouTube in the keynote. Interesting. Is YouTube didn't have any 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 to dos this year. It was just that like like that slight nod to it. it's like yes YouTube and YouTube TV and YouTube YouTube Red is all on that all on that platform. So that was interesting because uh, normally YouTube does get a really big uh, shout out on stage in the keynote. So mm. interesting to see what what developments are going on there and why they shied away from not addressing that. So moving on to the next topic, Google Lens. Scott, do you want to give us a brief 101 on what was announced? Angel, I'd actually love to give you hmm. guys a brief 101 on what Google Lens announced. Uh, well, first off, I think one of the most exciting things is that it's going to be put into the native camera uh, app for all the different Android devices in the ecosystem today. Uh, so that'll be an interesting, you know, now it's one one step closer just being like a very smooth transaction when it comes to um, looking up what you need to look up. Additionally, for the Google Lens, there are, is a product now called Real-Time Results, uh, which enables Lens to start servicing information proactively once you've opened your camera. So you can look around and it'll, it'll kind of recognize where you are in space and it'll kind of start pulling it's like oh, here's a starbucks over here or here's you know ratings and reviews from foursquare or tripadvisor or whatever it might be um but most interesting and this kind of works its way into maps is that in, it'll now provide you step-by-step instruction like step-by-step step-by-step instructions on how to navigate yourself through a, a city street so that was one of the exciting features for the google lens moving forward and there's also a lot of updates for the maps product uh, so now with the Maps product, what you're able to do is pull up Google Maps, and they now have AR integrated into it. So it'll, it'll be step-by-step -step instructions on how to actually orient, like orientate yourself on a street. So when you walk out of a subway, you no longer have to go walk two blocks and see, see if the blue dot is following you in the right direction or, or if you're going the wrong way. But when you walk out of the subway station, you can now pull up your phone and take a look around. It'll understand where you are, and then give you like little arrows in in AR to direct you on which way to you know go left or right. Uh, but additionally, there will also be uh, product reviews and recommendations that can kind of pop up as you as you're walking around. So this is kind of like that first uh, use case where we're starting to see, um, I guess you know how your just like normal walk to work can be more integrated into like what I think the future of glasses will be. So I think we're slowly working our way towards that. Yeah. Toward, towards that future there? Well, one, I'm one of those people that have to walk one block or two blocks to see the blue dot move in order to actually know where I am. But yep. I love this AR feature into maps because it would be great when you're traveling. So as you're walking around a new place, being able to see these real-time results will help you actually plan out the day and try something new. Absolutely. Uh, the, w the other thing I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention about the Google Lens is they're also c doing what Pinterest does. So now you're able to uh, surface similar looking shop like shopping items, so, so, so for fashion, so you can pull up the Google Lens and it'll, it'll recognize, you know, here's a handbag, here's a lamp, here's a piece of furniture, here's a dress, whatever it might be, and it can now rec recommend similar products uh, for you. And I noticed on the actual live stream that Target was one of the partners that it seems like that, that they've partnered with uh, to help surface some of these like relevant you know different fashion items or furniture items or, or whatever it might be that you're able to actually now look at um, through the lens. Yeah, I mean the new features that they introduced for Google Lens and the um, you know Maps AR and uh, all of that it's 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 awesome, but uh, in our experience Google Lens has not worked that well. It's actually worked significantly less good compared to uh, Pinterest Lens. Um, so it's good that they're integrating. Th it's going to get a ton of usage now that it's in the Android camera, uh, or soon will be in the Android camera. But I am skeptical that it's actually ready for that amount of usage uh, because it just hasn't worked that well on the Pixel 2 that we have in the lab. 
do you think they're possibly rolling this out to get more training data as a way to help expedite that? Yeah, that's the only thing I can I can logically think of because I can't believe that the experience of people at Google is so much better than what we've, we're seeing in the lab. The I was say like I, w I was also going to say I was just kind of thinking if because if they release this product and it, it doesn't work, I mean that that's going to set back the user adoption on this significantly. If it because if it truly is not that great of experience or it becomes harder and harder to actually work or use to be productive. I mean, I don't, I, people, people aren't, aren't going to use it, and that's going to totally set them back. I mean, like, they might be wanting to get data for it, but if nobody's using it, they can't gather that data because it's a well, bad Well, if it's experience. not working properly, they'll never use it again. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. They could, they could definitely get themselves in a situation that Apple is in with Siri right now, where Siri did not work that well in the beginning. And even though it's better now, uh, it's people getting people to try it again is really difficult. And Google could be potentially in that situation with Lens, which would be a real shame because it's kind of critical to the future of their business. <laughs> well, I think, and I think that's the future a, a lot of people are aiming towards. Like all these different companies are really aiming towards a AR first future. I think glasses are definitely going to be what that platform is, but a combination of of almost everything. So right. voice, visual. AI powering it all in the back end. I mean, this is something that I, th I think is like the whole industry is really is really going towards. And coming out off of these developer conferences, I mean, I'm curious to know what your guys' thoughts are and like what each conference means for the like, like the tech industry in general. Because it seems like a lot of people are really looking to you know make that make make this new platform shift happen. Uh, I think even faster than what we had originally pre like predicted. So for me, F8. And I'm going to go one by one because I don't see a whole overarching. Yeah, you can go one by one. You can o overarching whatever you think makes the most sense. So going one by one, for F8, it was, of course, around privacy and brand trust. I think that's what really came out of that when it came to Microsoft Build Enterprise. And for Google, it's really incremental improvements. So improvements of the Android P UI. I thought it was great. Um, uh, even Google, the wellness product. Uh, what's it? What's it called exactly? Uh, digital well-being. The digital well-being. I think that's still just incremental improvement of your day-to-day -day use of the hardware. And Maps, the Maps AR, I think it's an incremental improvement. I'm weary on how they're going to manage that with advertisers, um, especially when you're walking through, you don't want to get pop-ups everywhere. Right. But at the end of the day, when I was watching the Google I.O., I, one, I'm not going to switch over from my iPhone to Android, but I caught myself thinking... I really hope Apple announces something along these lines because this would be great. Um, Adam, so um, what are your thoughts on these development conferences and this, like, like the larger impact this is for like the tech industry and the these these three companies in general? Like, like what are you seeing out there? Yeah, um, I think for again, I'm going to go one by one because I think it's. Um, until once once we see what Apple has to announce, I think we'll maybe be able to do a little more of a state of the union for tech. Um, but I want to, and and uh, and also I know Amazon has some stuff that's that's uh, rolling out in the next few months. So I think you know it'll be interesting to see what those look like. Um, but so far this year, um, Facebook, I think was a lot of it was incremental. It was more of the same. They're doing a really good job of identifying. Um, holes and solving them. So like the AR platform, I think they're identifying weaknesses in it and what's stopping adoption and they're, they're solving those problems. The VR platform, Oculus, um, the Oculus Go is definitely solving a problem plus a lot of the content partnerships they announced, solving content problems for VR. Um, I could even say that the, the dating uh, app is also solving a problem that it's kind of weird that Facebook hasn't addressed earlier. Um, but it's really mostly incremental updates because Facebook's really stuck in this uh, this privacy and, and consumer data um, uh, swamp right now. And until they really get out of that, I don't, I'm not expecting big, new, ambitious things from them, really. So um, that was sort of as – there was actually – it was sort of as expected, you know. Um, Microsoft definitely 100% in on enterprise – um, I think, you know, we raised a good point earlier about, like, well, what happens 
if you start losing uh, first education and then the larger consumer market, how do you hold on to enterprise in the face of that? I think those are great questions that someone should ask Satya Nadella um, because uh, I would love to know um, what their strategy is there. Um, but you know, not not that much for us to really be be thinking about really at the end of the day. Um, and then Google I/O, uh, I, the most interesting thing for me was the assistant everywhere focus. Um, we have been sort of watching Google Assistant grow up over the past few years, and it's interesting to see Assistant, and I, I would actually kind of put Lens with Assistant, even though it's technically not the same product, um, because it is part of that like um, AI interface uh, that on top, running on top of Google that is, as we you know, like to talk about, is whether it's AR or voice or whatever, it's, it's part of the future. Um, and we're seeing Google really push um, on stage anyway, the use cases for these things to really extreme limits. And I think duplex is like the greatest example of that, of really moving the the bar so much higher than it was uh, last week um, that it'll be interesting to see other people respond. On the other hand, as we saw with Google Lens in, in you know a few months ago, um, what Google shows on stage doesn't necessarily always work in the real world. And uh, those are my questions for Google. Is like, it's great that you can demo these things and you're making these advances, but like, uh, what is actually going to work when I'm uh, you know, on a crowded Manhattan block that doesn't have good GPS and I'm trying to find my way to a, a, a meeting? You know, in that case, the AR view of maps is actually going to be worse because if it can't accurately locate me, it's going to be showing me something that's not what I'm looking at. Um, and these are all like there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, technology that's developed in Silicon Valley is sort of developed in a little bit of a bubble. Um, we see this as you know the labs in New York. A lot of this stuff, a lot of stuff doesn't work offline. And uh, when you're on a subway, uh, you lose signal a lot. And uh, that's something that millions and millions of New Yorkers deal with every day. And that is just not factored at all into the way that our smartphones work. Um, so <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of like colliding, ideal circumstances colliding with the real world that I uh, am interested to see how that plays out for Google. And with that, we now wait for a month until Apple and WWDC on June, June 6th to see what they... Uh, release and what they talk about uh, we'll we'll see what um we'll see what apple has to bring to us and if you're looking for more great content go check out our website at ipglab.com from there you can subscribe to our medium blog uh you can follow us on our on our social channels at, at ipglab uh, subscribe to our newsletter and if you like what you hear tell your friends or even better uh you know try us out on amazon alexa or google home you know you can just ask them to ask ask alexa to ask tune in to uh play the floor nine podcast and that'll pop up so uh, let us know how that experience goes but with that we'll talk to you next time